see if it'll connect. If not, you might be running this for me. Today we want to continue in our walk through um, the Beatitudes, but today is also um, kind of a special day because it's also um, Sanctity of Life Sunday in the in the church. I know that next weekend is kind of Sanctity of Human Dignity or something nationwide. It's on the calendar. Um, they don't put them together because one is focused on the gospel and one is not necessarily. And so we're going to um, kind of look at the beatitude of the hunger and thirst for righteousness in light of that. But it's also, this is my, this is the Barry's fourth anniversary of being in Laramie. So four years ago was my first sermon, which was interesting because it was the Right to Life Sunday. And um, I had just become the pastor, just show up and then it's like, I didn't realize that that was the Sunday. I didn't pay attention. I don't know why. And then um, it was kind of like, oh, well, here we go. I guess uh, my first Sunday, we'll just mark a line in the sand. Let's do this. And so it's pretty interesting and pretty awesome. And so over the last several years, I've tried to put this issue in a couple different frameworks. The first time I ever preached about it, I used a book um, that was called Abortion. Men created it and men can end it. And so we talked about how a woman's right um, women's rights issues, like Susan B. Anthony was one of the most pro-choicey, pro-choicers you could ever see. That when you look at the history of women in the United States, as women in the move for suffrage, they were very anti-abortion um, because it was seen as a blight on women because men forced it upon women. And then that shifted when you hit the 60s, and all of a sudden it kind of flipped. So it's kind of like the, uh, if you heard the saying, when uh, one of the greatest tricks that Satan ever did was convince the world he doesn't exist. Well, one of the greatest tricks that the abortion industry ever did was make it from a women's rights issue that it shouldn't happen, flipped it to it should be a woman's right to do it. It's one of the greatest tricks that's ever been done on any issue in our nation. Um, and so it's been flipped. The, the trick was flipped in the 60s. And so now it becomes a women's rights issue to have it. And so um, we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit. And what is truth and what is what we see in the righteousness of God and the Beatitudes are kind of put it all together. So in my mind, it makes lots of sense. But I'm not sure if it will. So you can be the judges of that afterwards. But we'll get there. Also, uh, I'm also a dense person. I think some of you know that. And Steve had handed me a piece of paper with two people to pray for. And I sat it on the podium and I didn't even read them. So we're going to pray for God's word to be open to us. And we're going to pray for these two requests. Um, it's Nancy and Earl are at the Laramie Care Center. And they've both gotten sick and are close to having pneumonia or have pneumonia. And so they need our prayers so that, that would um, be freed from their lungs. So let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you again for your word. And I pray as we open um, the scriptures that you would open our hearts to see that we should have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, which that's not only in our lives, but it's also in the world. And so I pray that you'll help us to see that, Lord, that that's part of your sovereign plan is for the people of God to be the mouth of God, to help people see the righteousness of God. We also want to pray for Nancy and for Earl, Lord, that they are your children in the care center, and they are suffering, Lord. They're sick. Um, they have pneumonia. They're not in a spot where they should be contracting that. It can be scary and dangerous. And so we pray that they would be healed, that they would get the help and the medicine they need, that we would pray mostly, Lord, for you to heal them, and that Steve would tell us next week that the pneumonia is gone, and we would sing your praise. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that. Help us. Help us to see the truth in your word. We love you. Amen. So if you look at the Beatitudes, there's kind of a progression that happens. It's a pretty interesting progression. Um, where you have the first ones we've looked at in the last couple weeks, you see that they kind of build. So when we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we see that poor in spirit means that you, it's a humility. You have a humbleness about you, that you don't have it all figured out. You're not the one that has this all under control. You have a humility about you. You're poor in spirit. Um, I'm not all that in a bag of chips. Nobody remembers that? Nobody watch Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Like I'm, okay, never mind. All right, so uh, I'm dating myself. So you're poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you have a humility of your spirit, you know that you're not the end-all, be-all of society and existence. You have a humility of spirit. You're poor in spirit. Then we saw, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So you first understand that God is holy and you're not. Then you mourn. You have a mourning for the sins you've committed, the things done against you. You mourn that. You, you don't want to be that way anymore. 
You, you have temptations that are always at war against you. Like Paul talked about being the thorn in his side. He had a consistent war against his flesh. It doesn't mean it's ever going to go away, but it means you have a posture of saying, I don't want this. I don't want this anymore. I don't want this to be my story. So you mourn that. And then we saw, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meekness isn't weakness. I know they rhyme, but that's not what they are. They're not conducive to each other. What it meant was that meekness is power under control. It's power put under the authority of God. And we use the horse metaphor. The idea that a wild Mustang is full of power, but it really is an unchanneled power. And if you can channel that power, then it can be a great racehorse. It can be a great thing of beauty and power under control. And that's our lives. That we have great freedoms, we have great abilities, great things we can do, but if it's under the authority of God, then it can shine brightly. And then we get to today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we all can relate to this, can't we? Because we know hunger, don't we? Some of you are hungry right now. Sometimes you can hear your neighbor's hunger. Would you like a cracker? I think you're hungry. Um, right? We know that. We know what thirst is. So Jesus is using something that we can all relate to in this. He's using that we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Now, we, we know what this looks like because it's, it's true in our own lives. We hunger for it. So, he, so you see the progression. Poor in spirit, I, I have to humble myself. I'm going to mourn the sins that have been done to me and the sins that I've done. I'm going to mourn the fact that I've, I've offended God. I've done things against him. I'm going to mourn that. And then I'm going to be meek. I'm going to take, the, I'm going to take my power, my authority, and I'm going to put it under the authority of God because that's where it belongs. And out of that, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can't have a hunger and thirst for righteousness until the other things happen. So poor in spirit, you mourn your loss, you mourn the sins, and then you have a meekness. It's like that's, that's salvation. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then out of salvation comes a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your own righteousness and righteousness outside of yourself. So what's that? that looks like I have a hunger for God's righteousness in my life. I don't like the sins that I commit. I don't like the things I'm tempted with. I don't like how I act sometimes. I know that I am not how I'm supposed to be that I should hunger for the righteousness of God to be manifest in my life. But then it also spills out into the world. We have a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God in the world. That's what John was talking about. How often we're inundated with so many things coming at us. And if you have any heart for Christ, you have to have those moments where you're like, seriously, again? Again, Lord? Another attack, another person hurt, another disaster, another bridge fell, another plane crashed, another boat sank. Are you kidding me? You, that, that bubbles into you. It comes out of you. And then if you have a good abiding relationship with Christ, then typically the pattern is, I'm broken, I'm devastated, I don't understand this. Okay, God, I'm going to have to give it to you because I trust you're good, I trust you're holy, I trust you have this, I don't understand, I wish you would fix it, I wish you'd come back. Could you just come back tomorrow, Jesus? Doesn't that happen every week when we have come together for our prayer concerns? One more person has pneumonia. One more person has cancer. One more. And then we have the great celebrations in between that keep us string along, don't we? Oh, we're in remission now. It's great. It's happening. We have it. This person's healed. They're out of the hospital. The brain tumor's been diminished. And just when we're like, yes, amen, yes. Oh, so-and-so has another one. And it becomes this emotional roller coaster, doesn't it? So we have it in us. You have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. It's in you. It's part of who you are. God's wired us that way because he's holy and just and righteous himself. Even non-believers, people far from Christ, can look at pain and suffering in the world and say, why? Why can't this change? Why can't this be fixed? So we have two kind of dichotomies in this your own personal hunger for righteousness to be more like christ to not have the same struggles to not have the same issues we all have that but then we also have the righteousness for god that's found in the world but there's a danger in like where do we figure that stuff out where do we learn that from how do we figure these things out and so as john spoke about truth and last week brian spoke about truth I listened to a couple articles this week. I read a, I didn't listen. I read a couple articles this week. T 
talking about where our truth comes from. There are a couple bubbles in our country where truth comes from. No matter what your truth is, this isn't a political dissertation. No matter where you land on a political or media spectrum, truth comes from a certain few bubbles. Movies and television are produced in Los Angeles, around Hollywood. So there's a bubble there. There's a cultural bubble there that produces most of the stuff that we digest. You have in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, the technology world. Like We, ha- we all love our technology, don't we? Love our smartphones. Love our- we love that stuff. We have to go way up in the mountains to get away from it. And we go, oh, it's so good to be away from that. What? Like John mentioned, you could just turn it off. Like how many times do you go out to dinner with someone or have lunch with someone and everybody puts their phones on the table just in case we get an important phone call? Like what would happen if we all just decided, hey, let's have some lunch tomorrow and let's all leave our phones out in the car just for this one hour, no distraction, just me and you talking. Uh, but I might, I, we, get, we get the shakes, don't we? All of a sudden our phone, vi- like our leg vibrates. Ooh, that was me. No, it wasn't. It's, it's called phantom vibration syndrome. I don't know if you know that or not. And like, well, I don't know what that was. Self-importance, that's the problem. Then you go to the East Coast, and you have New York City, where most news is produced comes out of New York City. Now, you have CNN. It's kind of odd in Atlanta, but they have offices in New York, too. Where Whether it's the New York Times, it's the publishing world, book publishers, New York is the mecca of most of the news we digest. And in Washington, D.C. as well. So you have these kind of bubbles on the coast, and then all, we live in what's known as flyover country, where the people of importance and people of means, they live here, and they fly here, and they fly back and forth, and we're in flyover country. Then I read another interesting article this week that talked about how uh, it was a reporter who, po- who posited to his reporter friends, he just asked this simple question, how many of you know someone who drives a pickup truck? And they knew where they were going with this. And so the reporters, there was a massive backlash. What's it matter? How, what, who cares? What's the problem? Who, what you, because the number one, two, and three vehicles in the United States are the Ford F-150, the Chevy Silverado, and the Dodge Ram. Year after year after year, trucks are the most sold vehicles in this country. But if you live in a bubble that you don't know someone that drives a truck, what's that mean? Well, you don't need it. You use Uber more than you drive on your own. You don't Right? You, don't have, you don't have a knowledge of someone who's going to actually use a truck to get something done. And what that all boils down to is the truth that we mostly digest comes from these coasts that aren't necessarily, isn't necessarily the truth that you need to hear. And I'm not talking liberal, conservative, because they're all there. Like, they're all in those same bubbles. It doesn't matter. So where does truth come from? For us, it should come from the Word of God. Go ahead, Jake. Jesus said... I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our truth, our number one lens, should be the very word of God. doesn't matter if you like Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. It doesn't matter if you like the New York Times or whatever, um, The Guardian or something. It doesn't matter what you like. It doesn't matter what movies you like. like It used to be okay to let your children watch the Disney Channel. But like in the last several weeks, like, uh, what are you watching? No, that, that show's banned from the list. We're not doing that one anymore. Right? You have... You have it coming from all these areas, but it's up to you to figure out truth. And it's right here in the very word of God. So if we're going to have a hunger for righteousness, it has to come from outside the bubble. And I wanted to show you a little video to kind of accentuate this quest for truth that we often are missing. Um, Because right now the culture says your opinion matters more than truth. So I thought Jimmy Kimmel could help us teach that. jumped out of me is where he said it's for the people to make up their own minds as to the truth which is a weird thing to say because no it isn't it's you can't make up your mind about the truth <laughs> the truth is the truth the truth isn't true if the truth isn't true it's not the truth like if nasa says the earth is round someone says it's flat that's not a difference of opinion the earth is round <laughs> one thing is true and the other let me give you an example uh bring in the coffee car here because okay so here we go all right so uh hi how you doing i'd like a um, grande cappuccino please okay grande cappuccino that'll be 375 no it won't <laughs> yes it will why because you think your opinion matters more than mine no because that's the price 
Mm -hmm. Well, your opinion is that it's three seventy-five. My opinion is that it costs one dollar. But, but it doesn't cost a dollar. It's three seventy-five. I don't have time to debate you right now. I have a Zumba class in half an hour. I just want the coffee for a dollar, okay? The price is right there on the sign. Oh, great! It's on the sign. Who wrote that sign? Did you write the sign? I know I didn't write. Did anyone here write that sign? Okay. Well, let me tell you what. You got it here. Now the sign says cappuccino is a dollar. So. Here's a dollar. Please give me my cappuccino. Thank you. I need you to pay three dollars and seventy-five cents, sir. I need you to know that the truth is for the people to decide for ourselves. <laughs> now, please give me my cappuccino. Thank you very much. Got a cappuccino for Timmy? Well, it's no, it's Jimmy, but not in my opinion, it isn't. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I think we learned a lot, right? You go to the next one. So, in a very tongue-in-cheek way, we live in a culture that's very culturally relativistic. That your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. And there are there are dichotomies, there's perspectives, there's things that are different, but we have to have a... So if someone comes into my house, or someone is threatening my children, or something's going to hurt my family, and I beat said individual to a pulp, Right? And the police come to my house, and I'm arrested. I will be arrested because this guy is laying on the ground. I don't have a scratch on me because I'm a tough guy. And this guy is barely breathing, right? That's what's going to happen because I'm that bad. I'm going to get arrested for pummeling this guy because he can't speak. We have no idea what's happening. I'm going to go to jail, right? They're going to read me my rights. I'm going to go to jail. I'm probably going to ask for an attorney, whatever. It's going to happen. I'm going to call April. She's going to come defend me. She says she won't. Dang it. Okay. And then it's, the word's going to come out. Hey, we got some video footage. We got some stuff. My family's going to testify. You were justified. You're defending your family, whatever. And I'm going to be let go. But can I say um, I didn't? I didn't touch that guy because he was assaulting my family. I didn't touch him. No, you beat him up. Like that's the truth. But the nuance and perspective is that there was a reason. There's justification. There's legal ramification. But I can't sit before a judge and go, No, my fist did not contact with his face. In the Bible. Jesus very clearly in Mark says divorce is hated by God. Does he not? He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because it destroys families. It tears people up. You're never going to get rid of it. My parents divorced when I was 11. I'm 40 years old now. We still deal with the ramifications of that divorce. We still deal with it every holiday, every time the grandparents want to come visit. We continue to deal with it. That's why God hates divorce. Not because he decided to arbitrarily say, I don't like this. Because he knows the pain that's going to continue forever. But does, does God allow for divorce in the Bible? He does. He has instances in Scripture where he allows for divorce. So he hates it. That's the truth. But he allows for it. And then what happens with us is we twist it and go, well, you know, Amber's 40. It's time to trade her in for a new model. Which I would never, right? So I take a biblical truth, God hates divorce, and then I go, but there's some, there's some wiggle room here. He allows for it in cases of abuse. He allows for it in cases of abandonment. He allows for this. So I'm in my wicked sin, I'm then going to turn it into something wicked. Like we have to decide what is the baseline of truth. We have to fit, we, that comes from the very word of God. That there is a truth. It does exist. That yes, sin exists. And that's, we all come to God knowing that. I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. I'm going to bring my sin. God hates sin. He doesn't mean the presence of it. You know what? He put his son on the cross for me. So I shouldn't be fearful, but I shouldn't hide it either. Like, yeah, I, I, I've been in sin, but God's going to forgive me. But I can't walk around going, well, I'm not, I don't sin. I don't have that. You're a fool. Yes, you sin, but you've been forgiven. So we have to say that there's some truth claims. We have to cling to that understanding. And from truth, we get righteousness. We understand that there's a holy God that we've sinned against, and we must seek righteousness in him. And what the, the crazy part of it, he does it all through us. Like He doesn't ask you to be the righteousness of God. He's the righteousness of God. And Christ in you is the hope of God's glory. He's going to put the righteousness flowing through you, and he's going to do it for you. Guess what you get to do? Be a vessel of his righteousness. 
You don't have to have it all figured out. Let him use you. Let him use you. Go ahead, next. So it leads us to a sanctity of life Sunday. It leads us to talking about heart to heart. We support heart to heart as a crisis pregnancy center in this church, in this community. We support it. We've supported it for years and years and years. We don't pass out the baby bottles that they often do in some other churches in town because I I had a conversation with the leaders there and I'm like, so I found out that they end up losing money on the baby bottle purchases. They buy them as a great visual example to get people to fill change and stuff. And I said, would you rather have a baby bottle filled with quarters or would you like a check for $500? I'd rather check. Well, we can put that in a box. We don't need that in a bottle. Like we don't. And so they were losing money, and I always feel like it's kind of silly to lose money on a fundraising endeavor or support a mission or support an effort. Let's just give it. So there's a box in the back that I think is a cardboard box from Amazon that's been wrapped in paper and has a hole in it. And if you want to give to Heart to Heart, that's where you're going to give. And then at the end of the time, the next few weeks, we'll collect it all and we'll send a check to Heart to Heart. And so, yes, we're not, we're not passing out baby bottles. If you think that would help your children get involved, then you can put your check in their hand and let them put it in the box. And it's the same thing. It all works. They're like, yes, I'm helping. If you really want a baby bottle, I'll buy you a baby bottle. That's like real important to you. We just want to support heart to heart. Okay? And the reason we do that is because there's a baseline truth we believe out of the scriptures that all life is precious. That all life is precious. And we are going to consistently be that kind of a church. We see Paul tell Timothy that the, division, the, the differentiating factor between a church and a country club is we take care of orphans and widows. We take care of children, and we take care of women. Now, in today's context, that'd be single moms and kids that maybe aren't wanted, or maybe they're a surprise, or maybe they're not, they didn't come out as perfect as you would hope them to be. We're going to take care of children and women. Um, That's the biblical imperative on the church. Where a church does not take care of orphans and widows, it's not a church. It's a lame Sunday morning gathering. You have to take care of women and children. And so that, in the past, wasn't, it was literal widows who lost their husbands. For us, we have a kind of an epidemic in our country of single moms. And so we're going to take care of them. And part of that is helping heart to heart. So I wanted to show a couple stats so we can have a baseline of truth when it comes to abortion. Number one, there have been 53 million legal abortions since it's been legal, um, since Roe v. Wade, since 73. Now, thankfully... Due to the grace of God, abortion is on the decline. Now, I don't know the exact statistics. Partially, births are down in the country, and birth control is more accessible. So we're seeing a decline, but it's still in the 930,000 range. We're seeing a decline. And if we are just statisticians, I'm not a math major. Never was. Thankfully, I think my student ID was confused with someone else's in college algebra, but I passed. And so I'm not a statistician, but I just want to look at some facts and try to make some extrapolations. If we're just numbers people, because that's happened. If you've read the book Freakonomics, anybody read that book? The book Freakonomics says that um, the way that crime rates have been reduced since the last 30, 40 years is because we have more abortions now. That There's been a direct correlation of people of ethnic, urban origin Having more abortions leads to less young men to commit crime, and so crime has actually decreased because of abortion, so it's a good thing. That's how you can lie with economics. And you can just say, hey, this is great. Um, even this last week, a week ago, there was a famous um, comedian who tweeted out that uh, the Republican Party should look at the basic numbers and see that aborting children is actually cheaper than raising them, so they should be supportive of it because Republicans only care about money. That it takes now an average $230,000 to raise a child. That's a nice sign for all of us parents, isn't it? But it only costs about $450 to end that life. So you just, just pure numbers, pure economics, we could do this. So before it was legal, 39 women died as a result of an illegal, often the term is back alley. In 72, there were 24 died from causes known to be associated with legal. So if we take that number, it's double. So we, just, we can all agree to that, right? Double. Double illegal, double deaths in illegal abortions. So since 93 to 2012, there's been 427 women have died as a result of legal abortions. So if we double it, let's just say 1,000. If we're just pure economics, economics or pure statisticians, it's only 1,000 women. 
So should we just use pure numbers? 53 million children versus 1,000 women? Seems pretty simple to me. We should just outlaw it today. Let 1,000 women die so we can save the 53 million children. But do we function like that? Does anybody think like that? No, because that, that goes against the gospel. It goes against the belief that every life is precious. The mothers, the childs, the dad, every life is precious. So if we're just going to run pure numbers, it's pretty simple. Just ban it. Let some women die. But we would never say that, would we? Please hear me. I don't believe that. Don't go leaving here and put on Facebook, the crazy pastor said that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So we can't just do pure numbers. It can't just be a numbers game. Because if it's just a numbers game, then it fleshes out like that. Go ahead. So how about we look at when it happens? This is what often in politics, what we see happen. What just passed last week or two weeks ago in Kentucky? There's a ban on abortions after 20 weeks in Kentucky, right? So effectively, who did that affect? 1.3%. When do most abortions happen? Here. Eight weeks and less. So that's great. Yes and amen for a legislature to try to do something, but how effective is it? So you can't even leave it up to the politicians. Well, the pro-life party, they got their vote, they got their... That's awesome. You did help in 1.3%. What did Ohio try a month and a half ago? They tried the heartbeat bill, didn't they? The heartbeat is seen on an ultrasound from four to six weeks. From four to six weeks, we can see the heart beating in the womb through an ultrasound. If that had passed, 70%. 65%, I guess, would have ended. 70%, that would have been actually effective. So why aren't we pushing for that? Well, just like John's talking, and we talk about truth, and we've got truth bubbles, we got, because every politician wants to keep their job next time. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if every politician just actually just did what they wanted and they realized they're ruining their political career and there's going to be a clean house and everyone's going to get thrown out the next week, but we're going to do the right thing for this session? That'd be awesome. That's why I'd like to be president for one term. That's all I'd last. It'd be great. And then I get a presidential retirement. I'm set for life. It'd be great. So if politics isn't going to get us there, and, and look at look at what age group is most likely to be thinking about that or making those decisions. Twenty year olds. Twenty year old young women, maybe some teens mostly 20-year-old young women in their 20s that are going to be two months after finding out they're pregnant, they're the most sensitive. The most sensitive. And if the politicians aren't going to help them and the laws aren't going to change that fast, what are we going to do? We're going to support heart to heart. That's what we're going to do. In the last year, they had 600-some appointments with young moms young potential moms. The gospel was shared dozens of times. People came to faith. People rededicated their lives. Women were helped, counseled, supported, cared for. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing ministry. Do you know how effective crisis pregnancy centers are? I'll tell you. They're so effective that California last year actually passed a bill that says crisis crisis pregnancy centers are required to give information about Planned Parenthood that's down the street. Because if they didn't give, they're so effective in getting women to choose life or to give up their children, they're so effective that the industry said, the abortion industry said, we've got to get our information in their their front, front lobby there. And they're forcing them to at least have the pamphlets out there. That's how effective crisis pregnancy centers are. Where politicians let us down, laws let us down, Christians standing in the gap supporting crisis pregnancy centers have the most effective. I don't know if you know this, the church is more powerful than governments. The church is more powerful than politics. We are a force of good when we come together under the banner of Christ. So what's this look like if we keep fleshing it out? Go ahead. Um, 
This is something that is often put out there. You know, that women just choose this because they want their careers. Where's it at? Would interfere with my education or career. Now, this is from the, the Guttmacher Institute, which is a actual liberal think tank. So they're putting out this information that 4% say it would interfere with their education or career. So isn't that what we're kind of told a lot? Well, women just want to have a job instead of being a mom. I think there's a lot of working moms in this room. I think you kind of make it work. So that's kind of a silly thing to say, isn't it? But look at what really is happening. The percentage of people surveyed. They can't afford the baby, and they're not ready for a child. They can't afford, and they're not ready. What do we do as a church in situations like that? I can't afford my rent. What do we do? We give you rent money. Well, I can't afford my electric bill. We help out. What do we do as a church when people are in need? We help. What, what's the model of the church in Acts that we see as a description of how we should be? We hold everything in like. We help. We're going to help. I, I'm not ready. There's lots of moms in this church that would help in that, I have a feeling, if I asked you. Hey, could you walk with this young woman for a while? Show her the ropes, let her come over. Could you help her out? Well, I think that would happen. I know it's happened with one family. Some of you have been called to foster, and you're going to take other kids that aren't your own into your house. What a beautiful thing for people that are in turmoil, that can't take care of their kids, they've been taken by the court, you're willing to open your home to them. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. So we have women. That's, that's what I want to get. At. There are 20-year-old women who feel lost, who feel hopeless, who feel they can't afford this baby, they don't want to deal with it, they're not sure, they don't know how to be a mom, this isn't what they signed up for, and guess what we do as a church? We step into that gap. We have consistently. The same heartbeat that says we want to have a place, a night to shine for people with special needs, which I don't know if you know that statistic, 90 to 95% of babies that are found out to have a special need or a, a, a genetic abnormality in the womb are aborted. So on one hand, we have the American Civil, the, the Disabilities Act. That's all of these things to help kids with disabilities. And on the same hand, we come over here and say, eh, but I don't want that in my house. It's devastating. Walk up to someone who's been born and they can't use their legs and go, you know, it would probably been better if your mom just... Would you say that to someone? Of course you wouldn't. But as long as they're only at 22 weeks, we'll say that. Well, this is going to be a burden. This is going to be a struggle. So you put all this together. We get a picture. Go ahead. We add that African American women are 3.75 times more likely to have an abortion. We talk about that non-metropolitan women are half. So if you live in a city, a metropolitan area, you're 50% more likely. And the rate of women on Medicaid, so federal subsidy, are three times as high as that of other women to have an abortion. The areas where we have the most abortions are New York, Florida, and California. Wyoming is dead last, which is a great badge of honor, but let's all face it, we have the lowest population, so... We all know how to lie with statistics in that. We don't have a lot of people here. But that is something to be praiseworthy of. Now, I don't know what that looks like, stati- you know, proportional. I don't know. I don't know the ratio. So go ahead. So this is kind of what we have. Women in their 20s, urban and on federal aid, are the most at risk in our culture. And we see a consistency in the scriptures, especially the New Testament. I would argue with you we see it in the Old Testament as well, but we see a consistency in the New Testament of honoring and raising women above what the culture of Rome and Greece held. You might not like what some of what Paul says, but I would argue you're not reading in the proper context. That the New Testament church consistently lifted women up, raised women up. That the Christian church went into the dump and pulled babies out they was consistently rescuing children, consistently said, we're going to take care of women. The Jewish leaders, would they would pledge Corban, which meant, I have all this money, but I'm pledging it to God so I don't take care of my mother and my father. That there were people saying, single moms, people struggling, widows, you know, go over here. There was such, the church became such a place of hope for women in need 
that the elders said, hey, we've got to figure this out. We can't spend time taking care of all these women who need help. We've got to figure something out. So what they institute? They created the position of deacons. They said, our job is to, to pray and to teach the word and to take care of the church and to lead, and we need help in ministering the food, spreading it out. So even the very early church, there were so many people, so many women in need, so many widows coming to the church because it was a place of hope. Wouldn't it be beautiful if First Christian Church was a beacon of hope in this town? That if you're a single mom, this is a place where you can find hope. If you're pregnant, and maybe it was in some sin of your own, but that child is not sin. I hope you get that biblically. That yeah, a sinful act, either done to you or done by you, may lead to a pregnancy, but that child is a blessing from God. That God, that child is not a product of sin. Hope you get that. It's a part of the creative order. No child is a sin. And if you think that, you're just, well, you're wrong. But we can talk about it later. Every child is a blessing from God. And so we can have a powerful voice in this community. You then add, go ahead, that if you're an African-American woman, you're three times more likely. So think of all of the broken voices that exist in our society in America. Women who are alone, terrified, distraught, they have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to go. And so they make a choice that they have to live with for the rest of their lives. Thankfully, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for those women too. What's the unforgivable sin? Blasphemy. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's the only unforgivable sin. So is having an abortion an unforgivable sin? No. Is being a drunk an unforgivable sin? No. Is being a terrorist an unforgivable sin? No. There's no such thing. The only unforgivable sin is when you consistently push back against the Holy Spirit and say, I want nothing to do with you, God. I want nothing to do with you. So even for these women who may have made that choice, they may not have had access to heart to heart. They may not have had access to a church that's going to love them right where they're at. And they have had an abortion in their past. There's grace for you. There's love for you. Don't you let this, don't let the enemy, don't let Satan whisper in your ear and say, you made this bad choice. God can never love you. The church would never accept you. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie. There have been women in this community, in this church, and don't start looking at each other, who is it, who have been down that road, that have been in my office, that I've talked to them about grace and mercy, and this is a place for you. If that's not true for a woman who has sought abortion, then you need to fire me now. I've shared lots of my past, but there are still dark parts I haven't shared with you yet. There are still dark parts, I think, even now that I'd be ashamed if they were put full screen on here. If this church isn't a place for grace, then we all just need to leave. Sell it and turn it back into a bowling alley. It's a place of grace. Go ahead. So I would argue that abortion is anti-gospel. It's the antithesis of the gospel. You made a mistake. We need to end this mistake. You're worthless. You can't function. You can't do it. You're not able. That's the opposite of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is, yeah, you're born a mess, but you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You're struggling? Guess what? We have a support group. It's called the church. We'll come together. You need professional support? We got that covered too. We'll get you some help. We'll take care of you. You need a place to stay? We'll figure that out. We got plenty of rooms in here. You can sleep here for a while. You need some help. You need some mentoring. You need some people to walk alongside you. We can do that too. You need money? I'm quite, I know I've said this every year when I've got to the, I'm quite confident that if it was going to cost $10,000 for this church to take care of a mom who's having a baby, who's going to give it up for adoption or is going to choose that I could come up here and say, hey guys, I need to raise $10,000 in 24 hours. What do you say? The box would overflow because we know that it would be helping a mom and it'd be helping a baby and we would do it. We would cut all kinds of stuff around here. Sorry, we're always going to have the lights out because we need to cut the electric bill because we need to save a child. We need to help a mom. We would do it in a heartbeat. 
We could start charging the game place across street rent for our parking spaces. No, we won't. We're being good neighbors. We would do whatever it takes as a church. I know we would. But the main reason is because the truth is, anytime a woman feels less than, feels low, feels they can't swim, they can't keep their head above water, that's against the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not good news. And we are called to proclaim good news. Go ahead. In Romans 5.8, and I'll read part of it to you. I didn't put it all up there. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So since we have been saved while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, we will show the exact same grace and mercy for anyone who comes into this place. We will not go, oh, you're a sinner. Could you like work on that for about four weeks and then we can talk? That's not how we're going to act. That's not what we're called to do. Then we see Paul talk again in 2 Corinthians. I'll read the part of this to you as well. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now sometimes I question God's wisdom in letting us be the mouthpiece of his reconciliation. Because hypocrisy runs strong in all of us, doesn't it? But we are his chosen instruments. He's chosen you and me to be the trumpets of his reconciliation. I think with today's technology, he could just broadcast himself on satellite TV to everyone and tell us exactly how to live. But that's not how he's chosen to do it. He's chosen to use you and me, broken, flawed individuals who are still a mess, who have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, that we're honest about where we're at, and yet we can be a beacon of hope to so many people. To so many people. Like how many of you moms could walk in, walk with a single mom and they're like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know. I just, I'm so frustrated. I don't know. I'm scared. And you just go, welcome to the party. Yeah. But I thought it was going to be all great and joyous and happy. Mm-hmm. It is all those things, but it often is a struggle. How many of us men could walk through a young couple who's together and they're choosing whether to have a baby or not have a baby, and you dudes could walk along some side someone and go, you know, that's kind of scary, isn't it? All of a sudden, there's a whole other mouth to feed. There's a lot of responsibility here. But you know what? You'll get through it. I'll help you through it. Yeah, I'm terrified. Yeah, hormones. Horrible thing with your pregnant spouse, wife, girlfriend. It can be weird, but you'll get through it. It'll be fine. And I promise you, when you see that little baby, when you see that child, and you see it for the first time, your heart will melt like it's never melted before. I promise you. I know it seems terrifying now. Just wait. Just give it some time. How cool would that be? That he uses us as instruments of his reconciliation. That we then become the righteousness of God. That in Christ we become the righteousness of God. Go ahead. Last slide. Blessed are those who... Well, I got one more. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So how are you satisfied in your hunger? Jesus. I know it's the standard Sunday school answer. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we keep that hunger alive, we keep it alive, his righteousness will come to us. Last one. I found this quote as I was studying this week. Hunger is natural, but appetite can be cultivated. We all have that hunger in us for righteousness, but sometimes we have to cultivate it. We have to bust through these bubbles on on different areas that kind of are lens for truth, and we have to cultivate it. I used this example in the first service. So um, 
I know it's hard to believe looking at me, but I actually enjoy salads. I do. I didn't at first. When I was a teenager, um, there was this restaurant called Ponderosa. You ever been to Ponderosa? I think it's more of a Midwestern kind of thing. Um, sometimes, depending upon how well the establishment was maintained, it was called Pondagrosa. But it was cheap. For three ninety-five, you get the all-you-can-eat salad bar, and you could get like a five-dollar menu. Like for like six bucks, you could have all-you-can-eat salad bar and a steak and a baked potato. And so um, we went there a lot because it was inexpensive and it was a lot of food. And so that's where you went. And I remember like multiple times going and like everybody's getting salads and like, nah, I'm just going to wait for, I got some croutons. I'm not going to eat like salad. And so finally, like you ought to try it. So then you start, I started off eating salad without any dressing whatsoever because well, that's just gross. Why are you going to pour juice on it? Like that's gravy goes on potatoes. You don't put juice on vegetables. That's weird. And so the first times I ate salad, it was all dry. Tons of eggs and like ham chunks and like cheese and maybe this much lettuce. Then you eventually like, I'm going to try this one. So like the gateway drug into salad dressing is always Italian dressing because it's mild, right? And so then it's like, oh, well, I'll eat lettuce because it's a delivery system for the dressing because I like the dressing because nobody likes just raw lettuce. That's silly. But you eat, right? It's a delivery system. And so then find like, hey, I actually like salad. Like I don't always choose them, but let's, I, salad sounds really good. Nice Caesar salad before your 52-ounce steak is really good. Helps it all flow through. It's good. <laughs> but didn't you, you have to cultivate that. I used to not like onions. My grandfather dared me to put onions on my hamburger. I love onions. Like if you go out to lunch with me, I might smell halfway through because I put onions on everything. I love it. We have to cultivate. We all have the hunger, but we have to cultivate our appetite. So you have a hunger for righteousness, you need to cultivate it properly. You need to cultivate that appetite. If you're re- watching a steady diet of Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, you are not cultivating a healthy appetite for righteousness. You're just not. I'm not saying don't watch them. That's a great place to get bits of news and bites of news. But if you know they come from a bubble, mm, that's not healthy for you. Where should you get a healthy appetite for righteousness? It's in his word. I promise you, if you would read through the New Testament, because I know the Old Testament intimidates people, if you would read through the New Testament, you're not going to come to the conclusion that God hates people. You're going to come to the conclusion he loves you right where you're at, and he is going to take you from where you're at to become more of his righteousness, that he's going to make you more a reflection of the love and justice of Jesus Christ. You're not, you can't walk away from the New Testament going, yeah, God hates me. You won't get there. It's not, I, I don't believe it's possible. If you really read from the beginning to end of the New Testament, then come to me and say, yep, God hates me. And then show me. I dare you. I triple dog dare you. That means you have to do it or put your tongue on a frozen pole. One of the two. But we can have a healthy appetite. If you're worried about, you don't know that crisis pregnancy centers work, if you're the issue of abortion, you're just like, I don't know. I think be careful of who you're listening to. And do some research. Study. Look at it. Look at the impact. Look at the depth. Look at what a church should be doing. Cultivate a healthy appetite for his righteousness. And I promise you, he'll open your eyes to the truth. You won't walk around going, well, everybody's opinion, you know, just, you just, that's your life. You go for it. Instead, you'll start to see that when people go down those dark roads, they're actually damaging themselves. And you will begin to have a heart for them. You'll love them so much, you can't let them walk off that cliff. You have to rescue them. So then it gives you a boldness to say, I don't think that's how you should do that. Instead of, well, you know, it's their life. I'm just going to let them. And you can't force them. But you can cultivate a healthy appetite for righteousness in your life that's going to bubble into theirs. Does that make sense? The Word of God. We talked about this in Sunday school for the middle school kids. The word of God, like you had to figure out how God speaks to you best. Like they were expressing some concern that like they get to the weird words, they don't know what's going on. Like, you know, there's this great free Bible app that Version puts out. This church in Oklahoma City has sponsored that the family that owns um, Hobby Lobby has sponsored this app and millions upon millions of people read the word of God. There's a little speaker button at the top corner you can hit and the word of God will be read to you. Like, when you think about it, the Word of God has only been read for the last 550 years. 
The first 1,500 years of the church, it was heard. It was publicly proclaimed. People stood up and read the word of God. And then when people actually became more literate and the Bible, the printing press, before that was listened to. So you shouldn't give yourself such a hard time because you get confused by reading the word. Just download the free app and hit the button and listen to the word of God come alive. Do you cultivate a healthy appetite for God? Sometimes that's us being together in community. Sometimes it's serving in a capacity, actually walking with someone who's in need. It develops a healthy appetite for righteousness. Because all of a sudden you're less judgmental when you're standing up on a stage or sitting on your high horse. What is the high horse? I don't know what that is. You're sitting on your high horse going, well, if they would just. Instead, get your hands a little dirty. Walk with some people. Cry with some people. Some of you counsel more people than you care to admit. You become the voice of reason. You have coffees, lunches, dinners. You talk constantly, and you carry their weight with you. You shouldn't bear that weight alone. You should have some people that you can share that burden with. God's put you in a position to have an empathy and a heart to walk with people, but you can't let that be crushing to you. You need to cultivate some healthy relationships to to release that. Some people you can go, you know, I've been meeting with these three people, these four people, and it's really starting to weigh on my shoulders. Well, tell me about that. What do you think? Let's go for a walk. Let's go for a hike. Let's go do something. Let's go eat really bad food one day. See a pattern? I have a problem. Okay. Do you hunger for the righteousness of God? Do you thirst for it? It's good for us to have that healthy hunger and that healthy thirst. We have to fill it with the right thing. And it's God. And when you grow to know him more, he'll show you ways to share that truth with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would always stand in the gap, especially for orphans and widows, because we're called to have a supreme care for kids and for moms, especially single moms, or moms that are struggling, or moms that feel lost. Like That's our role. Help us to have that ministry of reconciliation. Help us to be mouthpieces of your righteousness. And I pray, Lord, this would be a safe place in this community where people wouldn't feel judgment or shame. They would feel hope. So, Lord, if anyone in this room has, in their past, chosen abortion, I pray they would know that you love them right where they're at. That that's not something that's pushed them away from you. It's grieved your heart but it's not made them outcasts in your heart. So I pray, Lord, that they would come to you, they would get some help, they would release that to you, and they would understand the depths of the forgiveness you have for them. And Lord, for anyone who is contemplating or has friends that are contemplating, I pray that they would send them to heart to heart, they would send them to this church, and we could give them a piece of hope that's found only in the good news of your son Jesus. And that all of us would be encouraged knowing that we are seeking your righteousness. Keep us hungry, Lord, and show us what we should really be dining on. It's you. We love you, Jesus. Amen.